Hello, friends and listeners. Today's episode is with Dr. Carl Jung, the historical giant and creator of analytical psychology. Dr. C.G. Jung joins me to discuss his life, his work, and what might have been if he had a little bit more of both. The staggering genius of this individual is, well, it's it's hard to to contemplate that so many central themes in a discipline like psychology has come from one individual. He gave us the modern concepts of extroversion and introversion, synchronicity, the collective unconscious, the shadow side, the individuation, the concept of archetypal phenomena, how myths inform and shape us individually and collectively, and and a whole lot more. Today we cover many of these topics along with his views on the modern narrative around heroism, his fascination with alchemy, and the concepts he was still discovering and working on before his death in 1961. We're grateful he gave us some of his time, nearly 60 years after leaving this world of earth. So without further ado, let's get into it with Carl Jung. This is Below the Line. So good to have you here, Dr. Jung. Really excited to dive into the the below line version of your life and your work. Good to be in the soup with you. <laughs> yes, the soup, uh, so to speak. How would you like to start? We can start any way you'd like. I've got all the time in the world. Okay, well, let's let's maybe start by giving listeners a little background on you. Okay, well, I grew up in Laufen, Switzerland, and had an interest in many different things. My father was a pastor, and my grandfather was a physician in Basel. So you could say it was in the family to practice medicine and preach, something I combined in my own professional pursuit. At 25, I began practicing medicine and wrote my first book at 30 within the new scientific field of depth psychology. Would you like me to go on? Yes, please. About that time in 1906, I began corresponding with Sigmund Freud, the famous psychoanalyst who ended up actually being quite a piece of uh, of work. I won't curse here. But for many years, we were inseparable. And I thought we we would spend our lives working together. I I thought that would be an ideal outcome. <laughs> so he was difficult to, to work with, I imagine. At least, would, would you put it that way? Well, the answer to the spirit of your question is, yes, he was at times. But he was also phenomenally brilliant. You could say something similar about myself to I was terrible to people at times. Just awful. But the other part of my answer to you is, is in what Schopenhauer said, and that humor is the only divine quality that humans have acquired. So part of that is in jest as well. And I'm only kidding. We should be as familiar with the limitations of brilliance people as we are with the brilliance. You actually make a, a large point in your work and lectures around dismantling heroes. And well, 
the larger point being that that our heroes should be unclothed, shirtless, and and with their flaws revealed. Yes, that is actually one of our largest societal collective flaws. We put heroes on mantles with unattainable stature, washing some clean of any flaws. That has its benefits of giving us ideals and exemplary models, yes, but it has its costs of then making sure none of us can recognize a living hero when we see one. We see one, two, or three flaws, and we say, well, that person is not a hero because they have flaws. They are not like so-and-so or him or her. We have, through history, said has no flaws and is no longer with us, but was a real hero. Or verse, they are not like the superhero in a fictional story we make up and tell each other and say this is a real hero one that is fictional and has no flaws. It turns out copper is quite useful. It turns out that steel is quite useful. Everything does not need to be gold to be useful. In fact, these others are vastly more useful than gold. But we overlook these heroes around us until they are dead and until they can be turned into gold after death with a revision. How many heroes living and around us do we miss out on? Do we not empower because we have these fake versions of of their stories, of these heroic stories clothed in embellishment with all the flaws masked? It's not just that we miss out on the steel or the copper or the silver around us. It's that we miss out on the chance to make gold right before our eyes. The very thing we're looking for is right before us, but we're told it's not here. It is in a place called the past, a land we can never go. What we need right now in the 21st century is more heroes, more now than, than ever. Early in my career, I had a disdain for a false representation of what was, the persona, the mask of the person. However, later in my career, my disdain grew for that which never was, the false hero worship, clothes in embellishment, stripped clean of all flaws. We need heroes in the midst of flaws, strength in the midst of weakness. Wow, I've, I've never given it that lens, but it, that is part of the, the meaning behind this podcast project. That's that you know, what is beneath the surface is far more universal, the truth beneath beneath the perfectly polished version of a, a creator or a thinker or their company or their creation is far more universal than the above the line version, um, you know, the, the metaphor of the iceberg that we see that might seem, you know, otherworldly, but beneath the surface, it's the idea, at least my hypothesis is that it's quite universal. So I think we're aligned on that. As I said, it's good to be in the soup with you. I don't want to delve too long on this because you're known for so much more than this, but I can't help but to pick up on the alchemy reference to the desire for heroes to be unclothed and shirtless, as you put it, in your comparison of, of gold to other metals. Between you, Isaac Newton, 
many mystics, there's a fascination with alchemy, um, turning lead to gold that is has largely been seen as a fool's errand and that no serious person pursues any longer. Why did you pursue the concept? Oh, I still am pursuing it. There is simplified literal articulation led to gold that you just described. And then there is a deep symbolic representation that hooked me later in life. The spiritual side, the alive side. To put it back in the literal sense, most believed uh, that lead and gold are what they are and that they are dead with no life. I thought that at one time too, but now I know they are not dead. They may not have a heartbeat, but all matter is alive and all matter is a continuation. I don't think it's a coincidence that Newton, the father of physics, also passionately pursued the philosophy of alchemy. If you believe in the theory of evolution, how can you not also believe in alchemy if you are a scientist and know that what is gold was not always gold? How can you not at least look closer at this philosophy? Gold came from what is not gold. All matter came from what it was not. So how can you believe it is not alive? I remember when I was younger and, and thought it was a fool's errand to believe in such things as well. Misplaced time and thought by such intelligent thinkers. But take the time to look into the mythology of alchemy, a continuation of the Christian mythology, and replace the incalculably brief human time horizon of wanting lead to become gold in a day or a week or your lifetime and replace that horizon with God's time horizon. Replace the desire to utilize a theory for personal gain and instead utilize it for universal understanding. Whoa, I didn't, uh, did not think we'd get into that, nor did I think anyone would be able to make me think about, about something like alchemy more seriously. Like I said, replace the desire to utilize a theory for personal gain and instead utilize it for universal understanding. And you might appreciate the viewpoint that matter is living slightly more deeply. The earth was flat in our minds and then it was not. Matter was dead in my mind and then it was not. So fascinating that we started this conversation off talking about matter because you're more famously known for the interpretation of the opposite, non-matter, you know, the the interpretation of of dreams or the collective consciousness. Zooming out, can you tell me a bit about the different concepts you have developed as a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst? And then I'd love to to spend some time talking about the role dreams play in our lives, in your opinion. Well, we could talk about my work on archetypes and archetypal images, which are universal symbols and how they varied over time, as well as how they influence ourselves and our culture widely. If we could talk about complexes and the repressed organization within many of us, or my work on introversion and extroversion, my work on the shadow, the collective unconscious, anima and animus, the internal contrasexual aspect of a man or a woman's psyche, 
Is there inner personal feminine or inner personal masculine? I could go on and, and the overview of these concepts. Yes, please. I am happy to discuss the self or what my current contemporaries might now call the capital S self, the overarching concept that governs our collective unconscious and the unifying force between us. Individuation and personal fulfillment or synchronicity, the simultaneous occurrence of phenomena. Or we could go back, as you said, to dreams and the unconscious. Yes, I'd like to do that. But can you give me two to three others that you'd like to touch on with our time today as well? Well, the overarching one might be individuation. is a process of fulfillment of each individual. If all of these concepts I've further developed are a toolkit, so to speak, individuation is the job for the tools to perform. So I could talk about the tools or the goal the tools are, are meant to bring about. How do you mean? Well, I'm more famous for the things like the self or extroversion or introversion, which is wildly misinterpreted for popular consumption. It's as if people are fascinated with the first level of the latter. It's the one right above them. It's the interpretation of the dream they had last night. But individuation is where the, the latter leads, you could say. And that is where the work leads. The process of fulfillment of each individual which debates Neither the conscious or unconscious position, but does justice to both of them. The integration of the conscious and unconscious position, both of which are necessary and neither more important than the other. To build a stable structure, you need both a stable environment and stable ground beneath you. And the stable structure on top. You become a true useful individual to your community. Once you have stabilized the structure, and you stabilize the structure by first stabilizing it upon rock and not sand, as they would say. Well, now it seems almost silly to go back to dreams. So that's your purview into the unconscious. The first run of the latter is critical too. It's a very fine place to start. Okay, what is a dream you've, you've had lately? Oh, I now have the same dream over and over. Different figures, different environments, but more or less the same dream over and over. My dream is that I am the friend to the one who is lonely. What do you mean? When you are away from someone you love, a great friend, a parent, your husband or wife, you can be with 100 other people in some strange land, not alone, but lonely. When you are disconnected from your unconscious, that same loneliness appears. You are disconnected and you long for connection. You were connected with it when you were young, your mind, body, and soul developed with it, but you have since been disconnected. Disconnected from a great friend and you are lonely. Disconnected from yourself and you'll become, well, you'll become a, a real piece of work like that Freud guy. Uh, shots fired, as the kids would say. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He was a clothed hero of mine for many years. And later in life, he became a true one. 
I like busting his balls though. <laughs> so disconnection from the self leads to loneliness. Is that right? Of the most important kind. And my dream is that I'm the friend to the one who's lonely. How are you that, that friend? How does that play out? Well, it plays out hopefully in conscious ways as I aim to incorporate and not repress that vision and dream. And it plays out in developing the rungs of the ladder that my clients or lecture attendants need to climb. Whether that is the understanding of a recurring dream by getting the client to paint them, write them, reflect on them. Most have a dream that you say is funny or that you saw terrifying. Then you forget by breakfast. See, other rungs are awareness of the collective unconscious, the awareness of the self, the integration of the anima, the aspect of the man's psyche, that is his inner personal feminine, conceived both as a complex and an archetypal image, the animus, the aspect of the woman's psyche, that is the same for uh, their inner masculine side, again, as both a complex and as a archetypal image. The development of the conscious side, the house itself, the integration of the shadow, or the repressed aspects of the personality that they'd rather not look at, but guides them none, nonetheless. The archetypes we model our lives after, which are the truth authors of our actions, not ourselves, but this interiorized collection of myths. I've read where you state that man must live within a myth. Yes, man must live within a myth. That is not an external truth, but a biological truth, meaning that a myth is not just an external story, it's a map. Myths develop and are adopted and adapted like a technology, like a hammer, because it serves an intrinsic need. Myths are not statistical or external. They are the way in which we solve for biological truths, our biological needs. Myths in the world today are not complementary to our lives. They are not entertainment to abate boredom or to inspire insignificant behavior. The myth of the hero the model of the ideal, it is how we are fed, how we find love, how we choose our work, how we connect, and misunderstandings them leads to the biological demise of any one of those. Our lack of love, our lack of food, our lack of connection, and when I say man must live within a myth, man is not male, man is from the Latin manus, which means hand, to be handy, to be useful. We all aim to be useful. That isn't just our external pursuit or purpose, though it is that, but it's also our internal biological truth, meaning that an arrow is shot true, the meaning of the word, in the way it can most effectively hit the target. That is where we get the word true from. The most fundamental biological truth is the direction that hits the target of meeting our biological needs. And the most true direction is to be useful.
to provide for your community and then your community provides for you. Paradoxical as it might seem, but true nonetheless. Serve yourself, your lowercase, your separated self, and you will be in lack of nutrition, in lack of connection, in lack of love. Be useful, give others what they want, and you become indispensable. The community can't get enough of, of you, and they can't give you enough to keep you around. And the way to learn to be useful is to heed the examples in our myths. We know this even if we don't know we know it. That is why we tie our lives into myths. It turns out to be so powerful that men must live within a myth, like a fish must live in water. It can try living in air, but it knows whether it has the language for it or not, it knows it will die if it continues to do so. We are no different. We inhabit a myth. And it is our communal decision and our biological decision to choose one myth over another. Hence, we are constantly in search of the most biologically true myths. In other words, the myths that best serve our biological needs for the short, medium, and long term. Holy shit. That's the proof that the truth is paradoxical right there. What, what do you mean? Holy shit. When you heard something that rang true, your instinctive response was the words holy and shit. Shit is not conventionally seen as holy. It's the last thing we, we think of as holy. It's a biological result. It's waste and no longer needed. Yet, you spend out, you zoom out on a different time horizon, and it's not a result. It's the revolving beginning. It's that which feeds the grass, the forest, the orange tree. It's as much the result as it is the source. It is nothing in one scenario and biological gold in another. On the conscious level, it is shit. On the unconscious level, we know it is more than that. We know it is holy. So the colloquial myth, the colloquial term you just used, holy shit, it's not just a myth, it's the biological truth. Well, now my head is spinning. Finding out what is useful is, well, disorienting. Individuation is disorienting. Well, both of those are disorienting at first. To borrow another term from archery, the word sin means to miss the mark, to be separate from the target. To live in sin, not in the theological or Christian sense, but in the mythological, metaphorical sense, is to live separate from your target, to live separate from your biological truth. Our myths developed and refined over 25,000 years of collective authorship, tells us this. And why do these myths survive generation after generation, millennia after millennia? It's because they work. They help your arrow hit the target. They are, in the archery sense, they are true. So are we born in sin, as the myth goes, separate from the target? 
When you feel lost, when you feel separate from the target, you are, to take the archery term literally, you are in sin, yes. But Freud was certain that the infant and the oceanic feeling didn't distinguish itself from the world, didn't distinguish anything from, from anything else. It's one entire ocean of experience. And certainly, if you zoom out to a time horizon that begins with the Big Bang, we everything was connected physically. It's less obvious, but we still are connected. That is, zoom out 100 billion years, and there was this moment before the Big Bang, where we were in every sense, including literally one, the arrow and the target. So you may feel lost, you may be separate from your target in life, but I don't believe if we were born in sin, born separate from our targets, our aims, along the way, if we just forget, we lose sight and lose touch with that target. Let's take the 100 billion years again. Before, during, and after the Big Bang, we are under the illusion the universe was in a way exploded from a single point dismembered. But this, this moment right now is not separate from the Big Bang. This is the Big Bang. This is it. You see, it's still happening. And to go back to the moment where everything was one before this great dismembering, we must remember. It's a matter of remembering, recollecting, to recollect. And when we're lost, when we find ourselves separate from the target, we must remember to recollect, to integrate who and what we are, the individuation process, the hero's path, biological truth, universal truth, personal truth. They're all one. They're all the same thing. Oh, that was a good conversation happening right there. But I want to tell you about something also uh, worth talking about, and that is Below the Line sponsor of Tiny Capital. Tiny Capital is, well, let's, let's start with how painful selling a business is. It is extremely, extremely stressful, painful, uncertain. It is all of the things you build your own business to not have to go through. Just being in someone else's, you're really the ball's in their court most of the time when you're selling a business. And it's, it is a drag, um, that is to put it extremely mildly. But selling your business doesn't have to be a miserable task. You don't have to go through the months of negotiation, legal fees, only to get to watch the new owners trash the business you built. With Tiny Capital, you can go to tinycapital.com and you can have a response in a day or two. They will make an offer in seven days if they're interested, and then the close of the deal will be within 30 days. It's not five months, seven months of uncertainty of paperwork back and forth. They will respond in a day or two, make an offer within a week, and then close within a month. It is the dream scenario for selling your business. I've had a few friends sell their businesses to Tiny Capital, and it is as good as it sounds. They have truly built, as founders themselves, they've built the dream scenario for selling your business. So check them out, tinycapital.com, if you are interested in selling your online business. 
Below the Line is also brought to you by TechMeme. When the New Yorker asked Mark Zuckerberg how he gets his news, he said one news source he definitely follows is TechMeme. For three years and nearly 800 episodes, their short episode called Ride Home, the TechMeme Ride, Tech Ride Home episode podcast, has been Silicon Valley's best tech news podcast. If you want the latest tech news and analysis of what's happening today, yesterday, this week within tech news, it's a great 15 to 20 minute long episode each day that gives you that digest. It's more than just headlines. You could get a robot that would read you headlines. It is the context around the latest news. It's not just the top stories or top posts, top tweets. It's all of the conversations that are happening around those stories, those posts. It is a great analysis in my, in my viewpoint. It's, uh, it really is such a, it is basically the daily digest you want if you want to stay up to date with tech news. The Tech Meme Ride Home is like the TLDR as a service for tech news. And you can listen to it uh, in your car, on your jog, and within 15 to 20 minutes, you got all you need to stay up to date. Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. How do you know a paradoxical truth is true? How do you know it's not just some intellectual paperweight that, that sounds substantial, sits on the desk, it's impressive, you know, but has no real value and is not actually paradoxical truth? Oh, that's easy. There's a way one can tell if a paradox is true or not. If you zoom out, does it unify the arrow and the target, making it true? Or does the insight or attitude separate the arrow from the target? you from your target. The paradoxical observation that conflict on one level is harmony on another, that's obviously true. Your white blood cells attacking a virus allows you to live. Countless nuclear explosions on the sun give us peaceful, sunny spring days. Therefore, the paradox is true. If you want harmony, you must welcome conflict. It's paradoxical, but it's a test. If you zoom out, does it unify the arrow and the target, you and your aim? The major paradoxical truths are in our myths, and they have stood the test of time because they work. They pass this test. And many untrue paradoxes or good old-fashioned untruths with regards to arrows and targets don't pass this test. <laughs> Damn. Carl, you are, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> well, my attempt is the opposite. I am trying to help you recollect your mind. Conflict on one level and harmony on another, I guess. But I've never heard, I've never heard you talk about it in quite these terms before. Well, I've had a lot of time to think about it uh, since, since I last spoke on such topics, you could say. Would you say we're wired preternaturally to pursue recollection and integration or individuation, as you put it? Oh, that is a good question. Well, Freud believed in the oceanic state, where the infant is individuated already in a primitive form, in a primitive way, paradoxically. And the reason it is called individuation is that the individual fulfills their personal, their individual identity through unification, taking the divided self and undividing it. Unification of the lower self and the higher self. 
the unification of the conscious and the unconscious, the multiple personas, the unification of the archetype with the communal and current tactical need before you. Maybe the individuation is to become a knight or a soldier or a teacher, to fight bravely on the side of truth, or maybe it's to be the best doctor in your village, the best blacksmith in the village 200 years ago, individuated by recognizing that that is where they would be most useful. No matter the calling, the individuation is achieved through unification of these things, not through separation of the person from the community. I wondered why the process of individuation, something that is like fitting into a communal need, had the term individuation, which would seem to imply standing out. Yes, that is a common misconception. So word individual is from the Latin term for undivided, indivisible. You could stand out because you have a divided conscious and unconscious mind, the unintegrated shadow that makes you stand out in a negative sense, the criminal or the drug addict, or you can stand out in the positive sense, the heroic archetype that stands out for the courage or the singular prolific artist. But the person that stands out for the positive is a person that has the most effectively integrated the two selves, the conscious and unconscious, and the right myth to the circumstance. Our attachment to these individual figures is our attachment to the same myths and our attachment to our biological truths. And sorry, we've got a plane going overhead, but in other words, they get kicked up onto the mantle as children, as uh, children, as stories of the larger myths we have attached to for biological reasons, food, safety, love, connection, etc. Exactly. Wow, interesting. Which is why I despise putting people up on the mantle. We can no longer relate to Jesus. He has been pedestalized to such a degree with no evidence of vulnerability that it's an ideal, yes, but it's one we can no longer relate to. It's better than no ideal, but it's not as good as the hero you can identify with. There is a reason a billion people will go see a superhero movie that at least has some flaws, if it is a well-made story, and can be captivated by that story versus a sermon on an infallible, omnipotent hero that we must compare ourselves to. It's still helpful, yes, but it goes from being a map to being a compass, a step backwards in terms of assistance in our own lives. When we can be comfortable with the flawed heroes, the monk that adulterers, the preacher that addicts, the sinker that lazes around, then we can make heroes of those around us, treasure maps every way you turn. Why have I not heard this this much about the bone you have to pick with clothed and embellished heroes? Because I only developed this viewpoint later in life, been trying to understand not how to construct the latter, but why we all need one in the first place. Our myths and our heroes are on mantles and we can't reach them. And we need to be able to reach them. We need to become them, in a sense. We need to be more than passive participants in our communities. 
The hero isn't just a part of the community, they are an invaluable part. The skilled carpenter, the proficient mechanic, the informed doctor, the soldier returning from battle, the patient mother, the learned teacher, the loving father, they aren't a part of the community. They are an invaluable part. And you become invaluable by either doing what only you can do or by doing what no one else will do. The right hand is not valuable to the body because it is latent or wasting, and it's not valuable to the body because it is trying to be afoot. Its value is in its individual nature. A hero's value makes them indivisible from the community, indivisible from the whole, indivisible from the body, the collective. Out of curiosity, given that you've been placed on a mantle in many ways since, since your death, what were some of your flaws, shadows, you, you know, your weaknesses? I'm glad you asked. Even in my integrated self, I was a terrible person at times, truly awful. So much of the time, I was just so awful to people caught up in my own conceit, ambitions, desires. Sometimes this worked to my advantage. I'm notorious for being hard on my clients. Much of the time, it is and was my own impatience and contempt was a lack of truth spoken openly that made me want to, how should I say, shake people up or shake them awake during a session. I would learn over time that it was the terribleness that they sought in many ways. So in a way, my shadow served a purpose to show me where this attitude and approach could be useful. But it was only discovered much later in life uh, much later did I really learn to deliberately utilize it. I also, in the common uh, parlance of, of today, was sexist in my earlier professional years. So I would later work extensively with women, my childhood with a mother that was hospitalized for her psychiatric disorders and who I would see late at night hallucinating both compelled me to want to work with women in a way that I believe I was underprepared and desperately trying to stabilize my mother in my youth, not having any idea how. But that experience colored my view of women in general, you know, uh, to then view all women as unstable. My wife, Emma, changed my, my mind on that. She was exceptionally stable, even through all the grief, stress, ambition, and infidelity that I put her through during our marriage in Switzerland. My dream, as I said, is that I am the friend who, the one who is lonely. My unintegrated shadow in my earlier years was to befriend those who were the opposite of lonely. I pursued the correspondence and mentorship with Freud from the conscious sense that it would expand my viewpoint and my ability to help the lonely, but on the shadow side, my unconscious side, my pursuit for years to belong in the psychiatric inner circle was driven by my own loneliness. I was an only child my first nine years. My mother was unstable and in and out of our house with her trips to the hospital. 
And so I'm grateful for the support I always had. I was lonely and thought biological true north, biological connection and the cure for my loneliness was through acceptance that others considered great, like Freud. It wasn't until I broke from what you might, with today's terms, call our codependent path and experienced a rather uncomfortable displacement from that inner circle that I became truly useful and a true friend to the lonely. Can you tell us a bit more about that time of life? What would you like to know? Well, many know that you are very close to the founding father of psychology and psychiatry, Freud. He even referred to you as his heir apparent, his you know, professional son. He went so far, if I remember correctly, so far as to propose you as the lifelong president of his, uh, you know, of his newly formed psychoanalytical association. But then within two years of that, he would never speak to you again. Uh, well, thank you for putting it so bluntly. To be honest, it still pains me to think of him in, in that light. I can joke that he is a piece of uh, shit, but the truth is that the, the pain comes from the other side of him. the brilliant, pioneering, and formative side. I am the analyst and scientist I am today because of him and his work. Out of curiosity, why did you use the word codependent when referring to Freud? Well, to take you back to 1899, this brand new field of psychology was just beginning still. It was barely born and therefore always on the brink of extinguishing without the proper life-giving care. Sigmund, so he always, uh, he was already building a name for himself and this field in Vienna, his concepts were so radical that they got notice years before they got credibility. And and say what you want about uh, the credibility of some of the claims, the connections he made and the insights he brought to the field of psychology and the understanding of the human mind and psyche are, they are up there with any philosophical musings of Socrates or scientific proclamations of, of Newton. Not all correct, but almost incomparable in terms of how much it pushed humanity's collective thinking forward. I was 24 and studying medicine like my grandfather had done before and knew enough to know Freud was going to be a world-renowned figure in the medical field. His work on neuroses and his seminal work on libido <laughs> yeah. See what I did there? Look up the etymology of Seminole. Well, it was his work on the libido, sexual desire, sexual neuroses, perversion, sexual biology, and sexual pathology that was groundbreaking for its uniqueness. In his view, if you were represented as a house, your house looked the way it did because of sexual desire. Why did this speak to you in the way that it did? Without having a language for it, I was in search of universal truth. Sigmund wasn't writing about obscure disorders. He was writing about universal truths, right or wrong. Rarely do you find such educated, such intelligent, and such articulate individuals spending time on universal truths, much less proposed universal truths that were previously undiscussed. 
it wasn't a doctor talking about the latest trend in treating a patient with X or Y influenced by a peer's research in specialty A or B. His peers, his influences were the unspoken mythology and mythological truths of Shakespeare or the philosophical work of Nietzsche. Even though he would lie and say he owned works of Nietzsche as a teenager but never read them, he was influenced by by him nonetheless. He wasn't on this earth to cure an illness. He was on this earth to cure mankind in his view. That was his mission. So his work certainly spoke to me. Its sheer ambition and expansion spoke to many of us. But I use the word codependent because he needed younger researchers. He needed the, the resonance with us to further, to, to further the study, to further the credibility of others. And the credibility of others reviewing and disseminating his work in our universities was critical. He was a consummate student of presentation and prestige. His metaphorical house, if you will, was meticulously orchestrated, and it was grand. And if you want your art, your work, to rise above the noise, you can't have just one clarinet playing your ostinato. You want an orchestra doing it. He needed us to be his orchestra. And with the music he was writing, there were many of us in the field that couldn't wait to play it for others. As a young scientist, or in this metaphor, a young musician, there was no more exciting piece to play for others than Freud's work. And when I wrote my first book in 1906, was a bit of... uh, a tiny bit of notoriety that I had already established, I sent him a copy. I'm told he had already heard of me and had already bought a copy of my book. And that year, uh, around that time I sent him the book, we began a fervent correspondence. In my early career, the mix of insight and validation that his correspondence afforded me was... uh, It was truly invaluable. We would meet about a year later, and can I tell you a story? Of course. When we first met, we talked for 13 hours straight through the night. 13 hours. (laughs) See, he was a true piece of work. And then what happened next? What was the path to you becoming the, uh, the heir apparent? Over the next few years, we were exceptionally close. Me learning from him, him benefiting from the resonance of another thinker of some of some note, pushing his ideas forward. I pushed him on his concepts and he was foundational for mine. We would have these heated debates and I always appreciated his approval and encouragement of such debates. After many years, I looked back and realized this time was my own individuation. I feared being lonely and being under his wing seemed the most direct path to avoid such fear. 
it seemed the most direct path to belonging in the spiritual and biological sense, but it was belonging by association rather than belonging from the fulfillment of my own individual usefulness. Did you have a sense for a growing schism between the two of you? The schism was within myself. When I look back, that is the best way to describe it, is that the schism was within myself. My conscious life was moving towards him. My unconscious both directed and interfered with that. It directed that out of my fear of not belonging, not being useful, a fear of being lonely, a deep fear of being lonely, spiritually and biologically speaking. It also interfered with that direction because I knew deep down that I was to be more useful in creating my own identity, not being Freud's heir for the rest of my life. The latter part grew more and more over time. And though my conscious life moved towards that inner circle through association with Dr. Freud, my unconscious direction moved me to first develop concepts separate to Freud's, and second, to develop concepts concepts that were mutually exclusive, incompatible with his. How so? What's, What's an example? Well, I can give you the example. To Freud, our psychologies, our neuroses, our behavior had libido, sexual desire as the ultimate master. To him, the unconscious was just a cellar of the house, a kind of basement. But the purpose of the structure was reproduction. Evolutionarily, there is credible truth to that. However, to me, the unconscious was not just a basement of the house. It was the entire environment that the house was built in. It was the foundation, the air, the climate. It ultimately decided what the house would look like and dictate its stability or lack thereof. It was not just a basement. Those seem both compelling and compatible you know, compatible to, to me. They are when you first discuss them, when you first think about them. But when you are helping a patient, it matters very much which is your first wrong of the latter you deal with. If it's the wrong one, if it isn't the real first wrong, an illusory first wrong of the latter, the patient will never advance. Libido and sexual desire can be a wrong, but it's not the first one. It is your understanding of your own unconscious. That is, the choice upon building your treatment on rock or on sand. And there is no more important decision than where you build your structure. And over time, I increasingly felt his work built the structure in a partial, incomplete, and therefore unstable foundation. I did think that the libido was an important part of the formation of the personality, but I increasingly believed in the collective creation and collective memory of mythology as it co-creates the unconscious of the individual. From there, the environment and the individual create the rest of the unconscious. And that is what formed 
the personality in my mind and in my work. And my work took me even deeper than the individual's unconscious as the first rung of the ladder. For me, it then became a matter of this collective unconscious, this collective soup that first starts to shape and form the personality. So what happened logistically next? My views and our personal tension grew. And I think we were the first to know within our circle of peers that our views would become incompatible. And we both knew there was more than just a friendship on the line. We were all exploring new territory, recruiting our peers to explore it with us. And it wasn't just a difference of opinion. If we did not explore it fully and find determined peers to help us excavate cures for our patients as doctors, then our work was futile. So it was more than just friendship or admiration that was strained. We bonded over the enthusiasm for adventure and exploration, and he proclaimed me me as his professional successor. But within a few years, he was recruited to explore the North, and I was recruited to explore the South. I wish I didn't have the internal need to separate. It was the most painful part of my life. But my ultimate usefulness was through a commitment to truth, not a commitment to friendship or comfort. Commitment to truth? Commitment to truth above all else. If you want to hit the target, aim true. And if the target is truth itself, well, then truth itself is the only way to get there. I knew through the analyzation of my dreams that my truth was to become the friend of the lonely. I had both the empathy to seek for the lonely because I myself knew what that was like, had tried to avoid it all my life, and I had the tools to deal with the lonely because I had spent my career knowingly or unknowingly finding the tools to correct the loneliness in myself and others. As that unconscious depth became conscious and visible, I had to integrate that fully to fulfill my personal role as a doctor. I had to become a functioning whole in order to help others become the same. Truth and the commitment to truth make you and the target one, indivisible. The arrow no longer needs to travel anywhere when it's already at the destination. The arrow is in the target. And once one sees that, and once one looks deeply into what the unconscious is communicating all around them, and especially in one's dreams, then what else is there than a commitment to one's truth? People misinterpret individuation for the moment that a person transcends the group, the attachment to belonging, and departs from the collective. It's not that. It is the opposite. Individuation is when an individual transcends the attachment to the individual, the lower self, and attaches fully, attaches completely to the collective. Attaching completely to what the collective is calling for, 
from that individual. It's not the wooden beam separating from the house. It's the service of their purpose to hold it up. It is their service to the whole. It is the indivisible relationship, the complete relationship to the whole. When you zoom in, it is the threshold, the door, the beams, the cross-section, the courageous hero in battle, Odysseus choosing love and mortality over immortality and loneliness. When you zoom in, they seem like separate parts, but when you zoom out, they have integrated their unique purposes to create something bigger than themselves. They have become indivisible by discovering what is needed and become individual. The whole is an amalgamation of separates, but it is as a whole that matters. There is, there is no matter except for the entirety of the whole. So once I saw that, that was my commitment, not the commitment to Sigmund's orchestra. And when I look back, how I knew it was my truth is, is that it was a paradox. My usefulness, my unconscious integration, my connection would require a path through a crucible of desolate separation and disconnection. My commitment to truth was my compass and my map, so I was unshakable. But the map serves a territory of isolation when that is what you fear most does not make it any less painful. I like how Joseph Campbell put it, the treasure you seek is in the cave you least want to enter. That it how it is in many ways how it was for me. But fire is the ultimate purifier. Can you tell me a little bit more about that experience, the separation from Freud? I published Psychology of the Unconscious in 1912, and the correspondence that followed with Freud showed a resounding censure of my ideas that the unconscious is more than a cellar of repressed feelings, but is equal and collectively greater than the conscious mind. It was clear that with his monarchical structure in his viewpoints and monarchical stature within our peers, it was one thing to explore new territory, but another thing altogether when the monarchy denounces it. Like I said, I had the unshakable determination to keep exploring, but within a year, the break between us as colleagues, you know, uh, there were about 200 analysts in our professional circle in Europe at the time, students, colleagues, scientists, doctors, and all but two of them, all but a few of them denounced my work in the coming years. For someone that fears loneliness and desires connection, what was that like? Uh, imagine 99% of professional voices in your circle denouncing your work. I was 37, and in many ways I had sufficient connection with my wife, Emma, a force in her own right, and our five children. My unconscious fear of loneliness was partially born from being an only child until nine, with a mother that was unstable uh, and 
intermittently into the home. To know that my own children would not have that experience both comforted me and was its own sort of cure to my own loneliness. It also further highlighted the calling to be the friend to the one who is lonely. The fulfillment which I felt within my own family and my patients by pursuing my line of thinking was the truth. Uh, the, the truth that I connected to even if I had the cost of separation in a professional sense. So there was constant proof that I was making the optimal choice and it was the optimal way to hit the target to continue on my path. But the following years, perhaps the following 16 years were brutal on me as well and required such a strong foundation and belief in my work and connection to my family and patients. My confrontation with the unconscious and then the subsequent experiences I had included visions, hallucinations, voices, and I felt I was menaced by psychosis. It turns out that not much lead is left when it is turned into gold. There were proofs that I was on the right path, yes, but much of me, as much of I, me I had created out of fear, my personality in many ways needed to die, to burn up. And for about 16 years, I kept small journals of these almost schizophrenic experiences, experiences that I knew if I welcomed would ultimately be useful in my own work. I have come to learn that the pain of the individuation experience isn't the price. It is a necessary part of the reward. Because for me, the insight gained from exploring this territory ultimately allowed me to help others navigate it. Hmm. Interesting. How else would I be able to help others navigate it unless I myself knew the terrain? It turns out pain, suffering, isolation, loneliness is an expensive terrain to explore. So 16 years before you began to publish again? No, thankfully. It was only a few years before I began publishing journal articles more widely. 16 years of truly dealing with the voluntary split from my colleagues and internal reflection on this kind of professional and spiritual experience, perhaps longer, but just a few years of quieter work before I began publishing journal articles. And the decade after that was a prolific one for me, even in uh, a version of isolation. Many tried to make it more than what it was, tried to make it almost Shakespearean. And it was a professional diversion, that is for sure, and a painful one. But I am forever thankful I had the courage to make that choice, to choose that pain, even the betrayal, as I knew that my choices could cause such an experience. And I'm thankful that my work has aged relatively well over the last 80 years. It has arguably aged uh, much better than Freud's. Well... That is a point I observed back in 1910. <laughs> but several years in, in exile is, is a long time. 
Oh, I, I wasn't in exile. Before individuation, one lives a statistical life. The most money, the most prestige, the most faculty positions, the, the largest size of an audience. These are statistical truths. Yes. Comparable truths. Yes. But they are not biological truths. Life is in biological truths. They are the same. Though there was separation, I was not in exile. Though there was pain and suffering, I was in the midst of a life in which I could be of true use, if only to a few patients, a few students, and my family at first. There is separation once you leave a sinking ship. The bitter cold, heavy, concrete water reminds you of your decision and the comfort you may have previously had in contrast, but as you adjust, as you reflect, you know you've chosen life over certain death. As a scientist, as a doctor, as a man or woman, how can we make any other choice? It's not exile. It's the dark, chilling. Uh, it's an introduction of sorts to a new life, but it is an introduction to freedom. When taken voluntarily, like responsibility, taking a plunge into frigid water from certain death, it activates the soul. It was freedom. It was responsibility. It was truth. It was suffering. It was my purpose. But no, it was not exile. It was momentary human disconnection for a deeper spiritual connection. That, as I said, brought a truer sense of human connection in the end. We all know these things. We just don't know we know them. Once you consciously know them, then statistical truths do not consume your life, which is all statistical truths do, because they cannot do anything else with life. There is no life in them. Biological truths, in which our myths illuminate, gives life. We know these things. You know these things. But can you take the plunge off the sinking ship when you need to? Do you choose uncertain life, or do you choose certain death? Each day you have a chance. Several times a day. You make a choice between those when you choose comfort over truth. Your lower self over your higher self. Disintegration over integration. Separateness over usefulness. Man, this is so good. Thank you for sharing all of this. I want, I want to wrap this up by asking two questions I ask every guest. The first is, what are three stories in your life that have, shel- that have helped shape who you have become? Three stories. Well, I've shared a few with you already, and I'd recommend reading my books to learn more of me, of course, but three stories. Mm. Well, one of the, the first that I reflect on often is when I was 11. When I was 11 is when I had the first experience of curiosity, of separation of my two selves or personality one and personality two, the lower self and the higher self. Can you explain a little more? We touched on a persona before. Persona or person is from 
It's a Greek word for mask. I was one kind of person in one setting and another when all alone. It was as if certain circumstances influenced by both my conscious and unconscious created one individual in one circumstance and they created another individual in another circumstance or the lack of certain circumstances in alignment with my unconscious development that allowed me to be another individual. At 11, I became aware of these different personas and the following years, I observed their growth apart from each other. The fact is that absence of certain circumstances allowed me to be what I felt was a truer self, a higher self, was the beginning of my thought that there was a purer self that was at the center and a less pure self that my classmates saw at the periphery. I didn't have the terms for this at the time, but it became the seat of my life's work, the division between these two selves and the formation of a personality or personality disorder, trying to reconcile the two differences, trying oftentimes unsuccessfully to integrate them into one life. Another story would be my experience with Freud, but it wasn't the 16 years or so that shaped me. It was the discovery just before that, that I needed to confront my unconscious, accept my truth, as fallible and immature as its current state might have been, it was my truth nonetheless, and more truth, more true of an aim, one could say, than I knew was not true, and previous or alternative aims. The unstable house that would not be as useful to patients, but was seen as more stable by others. I could have chosen that house. It was this voluntary acceptance and the choice to go towards the more stable but perceptually less stable house, my, in, my internal truth, that integration of my conscious and unconscious that preceded those 16 years. That was a formative moment that shaped me. And there was a moment that I could have easily let slip by. I am thankful, grateful, and overwhelmed with internal fulfillment that I did not let it slip by. Being like this, not being loving. Love thy neighbor has nothing to do with being liked or being nice. Sacrificing being liked for others' well-being, that is love. So I am glad I had the insight and courage to choose love and life that moment. And for a third story, well, that would be my marriage to my wife, Emma, with whom I have five loving children. To take me down from the, the mantle, I, I was awful to her at times. Even through infidelity that she knew about, that I was open about, consumed by my work, addicted oftentimes to championing my commitment to those around me and often forgetting my commitment to her. She was loyal and stable through it all. 
She was the stabilizing force during my hardest moments. An entire ship can be saved by a strong anchor, and she was she was that for me. It was more than just emotional support. As, as I reflected for decades past my darkest moments and her support, I often think about the facts that her family's background in business, a business in which she and I and her sibling and spouse inherited that allowed me to pursue my work and have food on the, the table for our family through those most isolating years. My mother was perhaps the most unstable part of my childhood, and it colored my early views on all women. But Emma corrected those views. She was the most stable part of my adulthood, and I owe her everything. Thank you for sharing all that. The last question I have for you is what is something you think quite a lot about but rarely get a chance to discuss you being you know currently dead probably limits your discussions quite a bit um but what comes to mind is something you think a lot about but rarely get or rarely got a chance to discuss oh i like this question very much near the end of my life i had the concept that I wish I had had more time to develop. That concept is a concept of the voice in your head. Who is that speaking to you, telling you to do or to not do something? Is it your conscience, an internal dialogue formed by personal selection of moral viewpoints? Is it your parental influence? Is it the voice of the collective conscience reinforced by myths. My later thinking is that it is none of these things. It is a product of the collective unconscious, yes, in a way. But that is like saying a tree looks a certain way because it's a product of the universe. Yes, in a very grand sense, but not very informative for the tree or someone helping the tree. More specifically, why does uh, this tree look the way it does compared to this tree next to it? Is that voice in our heads, even for someone that is integrated as a shadow, is that voice the collective unconscious itself, or your parents, or your pastor, or a teacher, or a myth that is verbalized? I've come to believe it is none of these things and that it is you from the future. And the further you go into the future, the further you disconnect from the concept of time and listen to their voice, three things happen. First, the more integrated you become. Second, the more useful you become. And third, the more timeless your impact can become. Continue to feed volume to that voice your future self telling you what you ought to do, and the closer that voice gets to the ultimate timeless voice, God. The Latin root for religion is to reunite or to bind. The Sanskrit root for yoga is union. And the union with God comes from listening to that voice we have each been given. Separation from the timeless, separation from that voice, causes the disintegration 
of both selves. So, if you were my patient today, I would tell you to listen to that voice. Listen to your future self. It knows what it is talking about. Feed volume to that voice for 10 straight years and see where it takes you. Feed volume to that voice for one month and see where that takes you. Well, I think I've said the word wow too many times in this episode. So I think I should just end this episode with a heartfelt thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you for the time and more importantly, for your commitment. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. The man, the myth, the legend. For once in my life, that phrase genuinely applies. C.G. Jung, everybody.